on today's story beat i try to genuinely live in the moment as it's happening and listen and respond to what's going on in the scene and listen and respond to what's going on in the music and if you're doing that in, in, in as an artist all your senses are awake anyway it's really fun i've gone on as a character opposite four different leading ladies because of vacation swings illnesses the the understudy had to go on for you know half the second act and it was a, a beautiful ballet of listening and responding and and saying i can't act it the same way with this character with this actress as i did that actress because they're a different person this is story beat with steve cute a podcast for the creative mind. Storybeat explores how masters of creativity develop and produce brilliant works that people everywhere love and admire. So join us as we discover how talented creators find success in the worlds of imagination and entertainment. Here now is your host, Steve Cuden. Thanks for joining us on StoryBeat. We're coming to you from the Steel City, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My guest today, actor, singer, dancer, Billy Hartung, has over a thousand performances on the Broadway stage to his credit. Billy's been featured in three Broadway shows, Sideshow, Footloose, and Manelli on Manelli. He can also be seen singing and dancing in the Academy Award-winning movie musical, Chicago. You can hear Billy singing on the original soundtrack recordings of all four of the aforementioned shows. He was invited to perform in the 75th Annual Academy Awards. He also performed in the 25th anniversary of the Kennedy Center Honors in featured tributes to Cheetah Rivera and Elizabeth Taylor. A Pittsburgh native, Billy has performed with the Pittsburgh CLO, Pittsburgh Public Theater, City Theater, the Pittsburgh Playhouse, the Pittsburgh Symphony, and Front Porch Theatricals, where he was last seen in the local premiere of the musical Big Fish, playing the lead role of patriarch Edward Bloom, a role that made him runner-up for the Pittsburgh Post-Gazette Performer of the Year. Billy is currently the executive director of the Center for Theater Arts, which offers an award-winning professional curriculum of more than 80 classes in the performing arts, including singing, dancing, acting, and more. So for all those reasons and many more, it's a great pleasure for me to chat with the powerhouse performer, Billy Hartung. Billy, welcome to Storybeat. Hey, thank you for having me. That was it was nice to hear all of that. <laughs> well, it's quite a journey. You know, I, I have, I'm also a husband and a father and I have six kids. So my day is usually full of dialogue with them. So when somebody reads that, I go, man, I must be tired. <laughs> <laughs> well, are you tired? <laughs> Actually, I'm not. I'm quite invigorated. I, I have a uh, a rhythm of life that's pretty wonderful. So it, it sounds like you do. And we're going to certainly explore that a little bit throughout the show. So, all right. So let's go back in time a bit. Tell us uh, where all this musical creativity, the musical theater world, when did this start? At what age did you think to yourself, well, look, musicals, what's that all about? I love that question. It was really, it wasn't that I wanted to be in musical theater. I think it was the movie Grease. I was in the second grade. I liked the hair. And did the random outbreak of song over and over just when someone felt like it. So I kind of thought, you know, I'm a, that whole Danny Zuko thing's kind of cool. <laughs> so we had a block party in our neighborhood and all the kids would do a show every year of a variety show of sorts. So we decided to put on the movie Grease and I was Danny in the second grade and a 12th grader on my street was Sandy. You were in the seventh grade. Is that right? Second, 
grade. Second Eight grade. years old. Yeah. <laughs> and that, uh, my heart was like, I love this singing and dancing thing. And none of the boys on the street were actually that brave to to want to sing and dance. So I got to be the lead in the in the block party musical. And that's really how I got my start. And that was the, was the hook set at that point? I think it was because I saw such a, a joy in performing. And, and you know, the, the men in that show were just always running around with their cars and their leather jackets. It was just, you know, it was my version of what would eventually be Footloose to me or to mm-hmm. other people, you sure. know. So it was, it was great fun. But I had the Center for Theater Arts, which is the school I currently have the great joy of running was the first school I ever took an acting class in. And it was because of my uh, rambunctious energy. I was happy to be in the choir or in the chorus in elementary school. The teachers were like, he should learn about that school, the center for theater arts. He's, He's always acting up. And I think that was just because I'm a middle child. I'm one of seven. So I just was like, hey, you know, let's let's have a great time all the time. So I took acting in fourth grade at this very school wow. I now run. And then they said, hey, do you want to be in a musical? Do you want to take dance classes? I was a martial artist also. So dancing and karate were very similar. Uh, in my career later, I would have great trouble pointing my feet because I spent years flexing them, you know, in, in, in a different kind of movement. So, uh, but that's how I really got my start. And I stayed at the center till I was 18 years old. My goodness. So how many years was that? 10 or 11 years? Yeah, better, the better part of 10 years, yeah. And, and, and I did everything that I possibly could in that time. Did you know back then that you had some talent? I know. Actually, I didn't. I knew that I liked myself. I knew that when I was with these people, when I was interacting with folks from all different places that were doing these imaginary shows of, about all these crazy, wacky characters, I genuinely liked who I was. So I wanted to be around that as often as possible. I had never selected to go to, I went to Point Park College, which mm-hmm. is now Point Park University. Exactly. By the time I was a senior in high school, I hadn't even thought of going to school for theater. I, I just, someone was like, you, and actually at that point, the movie Dirty Dancing came out and someone had, a teacher at Point Park had uh, watched me dance and said, I need a Patrick Swayze type. Billy, you would be really good. Would you want to audition for that? And because I did, the faculty at Point Park of the dance program had said, you know, we'd be interested in having him come down here. And that was the first year Point Park had a musical theater program. Oh, wow. James Prescott, who was, was one of the department heads at that time, the program, the department chairs, had said this will be the first year we can take the musical theater major and make it one program. And I was the very per- first part of that class. And you, students. you were also singing from early on. Did you have, did you feel like yeah. you had a, a pretty good voice back then? I had a storyteller voice. I, I think I loved acting in every way. I loved telling story through song. I loved telling story through dance. And I think that's what gained me entry into many types of shows. Um, but I don't actually, I don't think I would ever have called myself a singer, um, but I could tell the story through song without worrying about having the perfect vow or the perfect vocal support. I played the character. Gradually, I would have to learn how to support things, you know, sure. obviously in a, a way to sustain a show eight times a week, you sure. know, things like that. So, so you're talking about your, your actual technique where you don't hurt yourself by singing eight shows a week. Correct. And Correct. dancing eight shows a week where you, you could theoretically hurt yourself pretty badly if you don't know what you're yeah. doing. That's absolutely true. And, and, and I'm such a physical dancer 
that when you do Seven Brides for Seven Brothers or West Side Story or, uh, you know, Footloose eventually, where most of that cast had been injured in one way or another over the three years that we had created it and put it together, um, you, you have to really take care of your body in a way that you know you can do it again and again and again. So, so at what point do you think, was it in college? Was it after college? Was it prior to college? What point did you think to yourself, you know what, I am pretty decent at this and maybe I can do something with it beyond just the notion of school? I would say that it was the way I found my way in was that I love being around when people's dreams came true. So when people started to say, I'm working on a new show or a new, you know, some kind of play that hasn't been done yet, or I want to, I wrote a song. I'm interested. Would you want to learn, help me bring this story together? You're talking about locally in Pittsburgh. Uh, Coming out of college. Yes. Going into, you know, just people were writing reviews, doing different shows, whether it was Brockett, you know, Don Brockett Productions back in Pittsburgh at that time. Or I I worked for Don Brockett. Did you? I did. (laughs) Yeah. So he came through Point Park and was like, hey, I'm going to, you know, create this industrial and we're going to change all the words. And it's going to mean something to a company that, you know, makes hamburgers. And it's not really a musical musical, but it sure could be a lot of fun. And I'd be like, that sounds so crazy. And then when I started to make money, literally being wacky and crazy, all I really did was say yes to people's dreams. And I was like, if that's what this is about, I, I do think I could, I like making people happy. You know, I like um, creating things. I, I don't, and I actually like rehearsing more than I like performing. Well, that's a, that's a blessing. You know, yeah, I mean, I love rehearsing. The maintaining of a show over and over is a discipline. And that's a professional truth that you have. If you want to do it, you got to remember to do it the way you were instructed to do it. Absolutely. To be in the room, to be in the room when they said, here's some warm pages. Let's see what could happen. Even if those pages didn't work, I was so happy I was in the room when that happened. So So I I, think that's how. I want to make sure that I want to make sure that the listeners who are all over the world um, know who Don Brockett was. He's no longer sure. with us. Don Brockett was a Pittsburgh, he was a notoriously uh, active Pittsburgh theater person who did all kinds of shows, reviews, cabaret. He did industrials, which is what you're talking about, industrials. Yeah. And uh, he was most famous for being Chef Brockett on the Mr. Rogers show, Mr. Rogers Neighborhood. So yeah. just in case anybody doesn't know who Don Brockett was, that's who Don Brockett yeah. was. Um, and so he was our, someone who would cast actors in non-musicals for business reasons, right? Sure. To create business moments. So you're like, well, who am I playing? You. But you're going to sell this. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So would you say he was one of your early major influences and inspirations? Um, well, no. I would say that he was one of my the first people to employ me as a profession. Mm-hmm. So, so he created a window for me. And then he started to respond with, you know, I trust you. I absolutely trust you. And, you know, then I'll tell you, Danny Herman, who was another Pittsburgher, sure. came in into town and was working at Point Park. He was a major influencer for me because he was uh, also a, a, a very energetic, massive, uh, committed dancer who had already been performing on Broadway and in right. New York City. Right. So when he came to the Pittsburgh Playhouse to do shows and cast me, and I wasn't the ballet kid or the jazz kid. He was like, who are you? Where did you come from? And I need this in my show. Like you're, you're, there's something about you we're going to look at. And I want it in my show. So that 
was a, he was a major influencer and mentor because I, I committed to things just like he did. So when he would do a dance or choreography, he'd do it in the room right next to me. And, and it was like, oh, this is, this is cool, you know? So, and, so, so what was he looking at you for, for your power, for your grace? What was, it, what was the thing that singled you my out? Raw, my raw commitment to get it right. Mm. And I think that is why I actually had a career in musical theater. Do you know who Gary when, Flannery is? No, I don't. So Gary Flannery was one of Bob Fosse's main dancers. And he's been a guest on Story Beat. And he was called the bull because he had exactly what you're talking about. And Fosse relied on Gary Flannery because of that, the power and the raw energy that yep. he brought to it. Yeah. There are, there are people that, that have shared with me that it is because of what I do in rehearsal that people go, you need him in rehearsal. Mm. Not necessarily because I, I dance better than anyone else or I turn more or I sing higher. What, happened, what door I open in a room with energy and commitment allows other people to go, he's going, I'm going to go, <laughs> you know, and, and I love that. So how, how important is it? Would you say it's critical to the success of a show, that kind of energy? Uh, if you're creating a show, it, I think it's very, very important to know uh, what the boundaries are of, of a particular, what, what, what is sustainable. You know, I remember, and I, I'm jumping around a bit, but my first Broadway show was Sideshow. Mm -hmm. And I was not um, in the readings or the workshops, but I was cast to replace an actor who was like 6'4". And right. I am not 6'4", for your listeners. I'm 5'11". But they saw me as this scrappy dog, this scrappy kind of puppy carnival kid in this musical called Sideshow. And I attacked this choreography like crazy. And I'll never forget this there were four bleachers on stage that were six feet high and the arrangement. So the orchestrations hadn't been heard until previews. So we had been doing the, all the numbers to piano and drums. And when the devil, you know, meets the devil, you don't, we heard the arrangement for the first time. It was swinging like a big band kick. And it changed the movement. And, and the choreographer at the time, Bobby Longbottom, he, he, um, he's like, okay, here's what we can do. Billy, can you do this? Can you do this? And I said, you bet I can. I jumped. I jumped off this six foot riser. I did this huge landing. I did this split on the floor and I was like, bring it. And, my, and one of the guys, there were four guys. His name was Tim, Tim Warman. He goes, Billy, eight shows a week, eight shows a week. <laughs> Whoever plays you is going to have to figure out how to do that. It's not fair. Like that's you today, but could you do us all a favor? Because you just say yes, you know? And I was like, but I love it. He's like, you're not listening to, to us. And everyone's like, okay. I said, all right, fine, fine, fine. I probably can't do that jump eight shows a week for a year, you know? But people knew I would give, I would sweat blood to find that moment and to find the success of something. And I think that really what that comes down to is I'm all in. And, and it's not just because an audience is there. So I'll, I'll ask you the obvious question that probably we've already just answered, which is how important is commitment to a role, a part, a movement? How important is commitment? I, I think um, this will probably be a theme that we talk about a lot. But when you talk about professional, a career in show business, and you are a writer, so you know this, when the people come in that room, you need them to go for it so that you can hear it, so that you can see it. And in that laboratory of going for it, that's your dream. So the bottom line is, I think my dreams are coming true, but it's because I was allowed in yours. 
It, it is not about me, although I'm supposed to be me. I am supposed to be 100% me, but I'm allowed. I've gained access into your dream. And by honoring that, my dreams will come true. But, but it's not about my dream. It's about making yours work. You know? Well, there's well, there's no question that uh, when you create a perform create performance. So, for instance, um, directing, acting, or performing, whatever you want to call it, and writing are three legs of the same thing. That is, everybody's pulling toward the telling of a story, and and so you become as a performer a part of the story that's being told by the writer and then put together by a director and choreographer and designers and all the rest of it. So the fact that you think that way, I think is a huge plus. I, I think listeners really need to pay attention to what you just said, which is, is that you're a part of that, that movement, that storytelling that has to happen. And it's exhilarating. It's really hard, but it's exhilarating. And it might be that you're capable of playing five other roles in that show. But when, when the writer comes up to you and says, you are the most likable villain I've ever met. <laughs> and it's only two scenes, but I need, I need two scenes out of you. Then let me give me this, give me the paper, you know? And, and, and that's a thrilling thing. You know, it's a, it's a thrilling thing because you're there to help that happen. And, and that's what I love about show business. That's what I love about creating. And as a teacher, you know, a guy who runs a school, when I work with kids, and they say, you know, Mr. Arthur, what do you think? You know, I never say, I don't use the word talent here a lot. I use the, I, everybody has a natural ability, right? And we want to achieve those abilities and those curiosities and see what we can do together. But at the end of the day, I want you to be the kind of person I would want to be on stage. with. Mm. I do. When you audition, I want to see that I could spend all day with you. And how frequently do you see that happen in the school? I see it happen a lot, which I love because these kids are mindful that it's not about me, me, me as in them. You know, they think to be, a, especially in this world of the voice and TikTok and, 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 you know, an overnight, you know, America's got talent. I say, take that M and turn it upside down. It's a we, not a me. It's a we. Nice. The fun will, will, the fun that we'll have if we do this together, together, you will never forget rehearsing much more than you will those shows. And, and that's what happens. That's a really cool philosophy that turn the, the M me into a W we. Yeah. Flip it over, flip it over and it's going to work out for everybody. All right. So let's talk for a moment about the process of being in a show. So the first thing that most people go through, we've already alluded to it is auditioning. Yeah. What is your philosophy toward auditioning? Uh, my philosophy towards auditioning is to remember I'm the only Billy hard tongue that there is and I have to show them who I am if I go when I was younger and I go oh my gosh I'm in the audition line and I just heard eight people sing this note this note this way blah 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 the, the reality was I'm spending time thinking about them instead of honoring me and so go in the room and honor you because you can remember how to be you always you that's the one thing you won't ever forget is how to be you mm. so if they call you back but you, one thing you got going for you right away is you were you the last time you were in that room. Mm. And if they call you back again and again, even if you make a mistake, they're going to go, look at how he recovered from that mistake. He's kind of enjoyable. Like I can hang out with this guy, like, or who hasn't not had the best audition, but he's still trying. He's, he recovered in front of me. So many people think you, you have to be so perfect, but actually we all need to learn that we can 
fall in front of each other and still have a success together. And, and so that my advice is when I go into an audition or when I prepare an audition, I want to be me so that I never have to worry about, oh my gosh, what was the last thing they saw? You know, maybe the, the note could have sounded better. You could always feel that way when you get to the elevator and press the button and go, oh, that high G gets me every time. And but, what's the most challenging part of auditioning? What do you find and what do you tell, tell your students? What is the thing that you must concentrate on? What is the most challenging part? I would say the most challenging part is in the two minutes that you're in that room, look at it like a clock at noon at 12 o'clock, you're you and one, two, three o'clock, you're turning into someone else and four, five, six, seven, you're someone else. And when you get to 10, 11, 12, you're you again. And they go, whatever it is, it's training. We'd like to see more training. He just came in as one person, became someone else and left as the person he came in that's something we should call back. That's what I try to tell the kids. Wow. Honor who you are. Show me you, you can become someone else and then leave being you. Don't leave being Will from Oklahoma. You're not Will from Oklahoma. You came in and in front of them became Will. And then all they really could do is, he just retrieved a lot of training in front of us, clearly. Why don't we call him back and see what we can do with him? That's what I try to, try to share with myself and with others, you know. And, and how, how easy do you find it for students to adopt that philosophy? Is it relatively easy for them to get that? Over time, over time. I mean, if they're with me, you know, and, and again, I'm, I'm not training people to have careers on Broadway. I'm training people to let the arts impact their lives in ways with self-image and self-confidence. You know, all the, all the, the heart of art that, that you could have, right? Be, let, let that truly impact you. Um, but by the time they're juniors or seniors, when they audition, right, and they don't get what they want, everyone's like, but it's still time to start rehearsal. So let's get started. And that's the win. You know, I just did a musical. I cast 80 kids in a show. And, and because they're kids, the show, the rehearsal is like a class. Okay. And I said, I'm closing the door and I'm reading the cast list. And the reason I'm closing the door is because I want to watch how you handled it. You're that important as a person. I want to see that someone else might have gotten what you got, but I watched you make a decision to stay. Because to if you would just leave and I don't have time to go get you, you're not ready for that yet. You, you might believe what you want to believe. Now, when you're a, a senior in high school and you're in this room, I put the cast list in the hall. And when you come in the room, there's three doors to that big rehearsal room. And the reason all of them are opened is because when you leave, I got work to do. You call me later. It's not my job to help. It's not my job to stop you. It's my job to help you. So you don't have to stay here for two hours in derail rehearsal because it didn't work out your way. Call me later. We, we are going to get started. That's really dynamic. I mean, that's, and they, and they get that. Then it also takes they a little bit, takes the burden off of them somewhat too. All of it, all of it. And they want to be in the room because we're moving on, you know, we're, we are moving on. And, and I, I do this really goofy physical thing where I make them make a human now with COVID not being on top of us make a human chain from the corner of the room to the corner of the room. And they all do it. And then I go around and I touch like 10 people and I say, you're out because your mom's late. You're out because your, your dad forgot you, you had rehearsal today. And you're out because you're sick and you're in traffic. 10 of you, get out of the line. I said, connect. I want you to still make the human chain. Connect, touch the wall, touch the wall. It gets harder and harder. Then I come, I take 10 more out, right? Now they're like, we can't do it. I said, you can figure it out. Lay down, lay down. And now I've got more people watching than I have doing the exercise. And I said, now here's the point. Am I still rehearsing right now? I'm going to rehearse whether you're here or not. 
great things are going to happen whether you're here or not. And the people that I'm working with right now, do you have all of my attention? The people who are in the room have all of my attention. If you want all my attention and you want to be here when something crazy fun happens, be in the room. That's fascinating. And what age group is this? Well, that I would do that dialogue to middle schoolers. Um, you know, I would say kids their age 10 through 13, 14, because they really, that, at that age, they want to be somewhere where other people are waiting to see them in middle school. Well, I think actors are that way in general, though. Well, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, you know, artists, artists in general are like, somebody's waiting for me today somewhere. But when I have that age, age that's very emotional, a middle schooler student or even a high school student that's wondering if they matter, um, that's the best way to not make it about their role, but make it about the role they have, which is to show up for other people. I'd say it's pretty hard to be in the theater as a performer and not want people to look at you. <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. You, you want that, but to know that it's also about other people too, mm -hmm. that's why people stay here for 10 years. Or that's why I can, I can engage um, you know, an artistic life as a guy who isn't on stage every day. But I know, I know the reason I had it. I believe in my heart the reason I had a career was not because of the, the, the eight auditions where people were like, he's our guy. I think people watched me in shows or watched me in rehearsal and went, get him in your show. And, and I would do what they would basically expect me to do. You know? and, and that's because I can remember who I am. You know? Now, if you make a living with your body, that's also really hard to do because- oh really hard to do. Yeah. Yeah. So they're like, bring him in. He'll, he'll light himself on fire for you. There is a limitation, just like an athlete. Well, you are an athlete, essentially. There's a limitation to how long you can do that. Uh, uh, use your body as a dancer in a very dynamic way. Uh, you just run out of the ability to do it over time. And you, you could risk someone else's space as well. Right. Because if you're doing lifts or you're doing, you know, depending on how physical some of that choreography is and you're doing lifts and you're throwing people around the room, which sure. are oftentimes our choreography over the last decade have, has become very physical in, in that athletic way. Um, you now realize oh, my, my body's actually being used by someone else right now, too. So, you know, you want, I, I won't use the choreographer's name, but there was a gentleman who invited me to a very important workshop for a, a big musical that was happening and he didn't get it. So that's why I don't want to bring up his name, right. but he invited 40 really physical active dancers to come and be his uh, presentation cast, right? He was doing the pitch to say, Hey, pick me as your choreographer. And the dance, the audition was like six minutes long. It was a huge combination. Right. Massive. And I was actually dancing next to a guy I took class from who was the teacher. Right. So at this point, and some of your listeners may or may not know this, but once you get down to the final auditions, you're not dancing in groups of 20 anymore. You're dancing in groups of four or groups of two. And everyone in the room is paying attention to how it works. So I was crushing three minutes of the six minute thing. And after three minutes, I just politely walked to the side and I let the other dancer continue and finish. And, um, when it was done, everybody clapped. And, and, and he said to me, he goes, Billy, do you want to do it again? I, I said, no. He, he said, are you sure? I said, you got everything I have. And anything after that was going to take away from what he was doing. I can give you more, but right now I gave you everything I had. But the, the next three minutes, we're going to allow you to forget what I really have. Mm. Like, 
he's like, I love that. I love that you just said that. He's like, because I thought this is kind of too long anyway. He's like, anybody else, if you're feeling this way, just pull yourselves out whenever it is. And, you know, it's just how I feel, but I can remember how to be that person because that's really who I am, you know? And, and it made a lot of sense for me in, in a career that way. I don't know if, um, you know, if in my 40s or 50s, I would, you know, I was in my 20s and my 30s when I was saying that, but right. I also knew what I was going to give, right? So I knew that if I created an environment that I couldn't stay in, my, my dream would have become a nightmare. Well, well, again, not to uh, not to harp on it, but, you know, you get into your 50s and as a dancer in the professional world of theater, um, pretty hard to sustain. Yeah. I mean, it just is. You're just physically not able to to keep up with the 20 year olds at all, unless you're some kind of a physical freak, you know, and there aren't too many of those. Yeah. So that happens. So let's talk about when you get cast in a show. And what is the first thing that you typically want to learn? Obviously, you love to dance. You know how to sing. You know how to act. You've been cast in a part in a show. What is the first thing that you start to work on? You've already read the libretto. You know what the songs are. You're going to learn them better than you know now. But what do you start to work on first? Where do you concentrate? The text. The text. And, 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 and really uh, saying the song as a, as a monologue without, without music mm. at all. Um, I write, um, and, and if it's a large show, um, we had, you had mentioned Big Fish in the bio, um, I write the entire text out so I can see it, say it with my mouth, watch my hand write out the story. And when you have that many songs and stuff, and then you start to say the song like a monologue and you realize what is repetitive, what is needed, what is not, how much, oh, he's saying this again because he really needs this. This second verse is really important to say it again. And then once I know the text, I can do anything you ask me to do. Mm. If I'm holding that book forever and I go, oh, they don't want a soft book for another 10 days. Um, I won't really, I, me, Billy, will be listening to others, but not responding the way that is going to help the, prod, the process. So I grasp that text right away and, and more than a dance step and more than a vocal song. And you, and you listen or read the lyrics as text. As text, yeah. And that way you're getting whatever the intentions are from a storytelling perspective, not necessarily from how your voice is going to sing that moment. Correct. And, and in some ways, that way I know the lyricist and the book writer are really, and I'm not testing them. I'm just recognizing they really put this in here for a reason. And they're different people. So they obviously made the decision to have this stay or it would have been gone by. Have you had the experience of doing that and reading the text and going, I don't know what they're talking about here. I don't understand what this is. Yeah. A couple of times I was like, they did this. So somebody can be off stage and change their clothes. They, they, they clearly needed a, a, somebody to reprise song because someone is exhausted and has been on stage too long or something <laughs> had to happen with the set because this doesn't make any sense at all. So when you bring that up in rehearsal, you realize, you know, I can honor this moment, but it's not needed to, to play this guy. That song is not needed to play this guy. But there are songs that are needed. You cannot move forward unless you honor the text. Well, so that helps me understand. The, the key is to try to have everything in a show as from a writing perspective. Everything either moves the story forward or expands our understanding of character. And if you do that, then you're in good shape. If you're 
not doing that, it's probably going to be less interesting to watch, i.e. it might be boring. And that's a problem. Right. So can I give you an interesting, and, and I, I will do this because I love the character. Sure. But I was able to originate the role of Chuck Cranston in Footloose on Broadway. Right. Chuck Cranston is the mean bad boy. Chuck Cranston's song was co-written by a rock and roll guy named Sammy Hagar, who has like an incredibly rock and roll voice. And Dean Pitchford wrote all the lyrics and collaborated with all these great songwriters. Thus, he could use the text and the songs as part of the property. My character's main rock and roll anthem, the text was, the girl gets around, 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 round, round. Good God, this girl gets around. She knows what she likes. The girl gets around, 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 right? I was like, what am I going to do here with this? Because I got to exist with, you're looking at me, you're looking at me, you're looking at me, you're looking at me, and you want to look at me. You're just embarrassed. Like, I got to be the guy in town who's the biggest party. And the song didn't have any text to help me establish that. But the movement did, the attitude did, the tone did, the orchestration did. And I had to live in a text that I wasn't going to criticize. It's the song. It's a really fun rock and roll song. But that's not Sondheim. You know, that's not, it, 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 it has a different meaning. And it's an anthem. And so I had to accept like the song, if the beginning of the song and the end of the song are only going to accomplish something based on what I decide I want at the end of this three minute song, the text didn't do it. And, and did you then also get any assistance from the director on it? Oh yeah. Oh, we had a blast talking about it because it was a very physical, um, excited, you know, I mean, there's an opening. She'd like you to think she was born yesterday, you know, but, but then you're really living in this around, around, it's a pop song, you know, and those pop songs, people start to sing with you while you're singing them. Right. You sure. know, and so you, 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 it's hard to take the song off of people after they're sitting there going, oh, I remember when this song came out while you're watching your character try to advance themselves on stage, you know? So I'm not critical of the song. What I'm really saying is the anthem of that song was there's a new party in town. There's a big party guy. And I could just exist within the party of let's party. Let's go. You know, this is going to be around and around and around if you're near me, you know? And, and once so you it, had it, that understanding, it got a lot easier for you to develop. Loved that it. I could, I could play at HO. I play, I performed it a thousand times and loved it every time. You know, I recorded the song at eight o'clock in the morning for Pete's sake for the cast album. And, and I was like, <laughs> All right. It's a pretty high, but I know what the party is the minute I hear the guitar, you know? So, you know, all of those, all those pieces come to play. You, you obviously have had the um, task as all performers do of having to memorize things and it's both movement, it's lines of dialogue and it's lyrics. Do you have a particular technique for memorization? I would say that there's a, there is a musical approach or a rhythm to some texts. Certainly there are times. Um, so, so let's, I will use a Sondheim. So I was in Follies, right? I was in a production of Follies that was supposed to go to Broadway. Right. It did not for legal reasons between the, the writers. Right. Um, but it was a pretty big production. And um, the, the music was so hard to learn because it was all half steps and whole steps and you know the black note and the white note and a and a b minor flat seventh 
discord, you know? And I was like, <laughs> how am I going to be so confident as a young, young boy trying to use this gardenia to get a date and go, hey, up there, way up there, you know? And you're like, half note, whole note, half note, you know? And I, I would say, nobody's allowed to sing this in the, in the apartment. Once, once I get these steps, that, these, these sounds in my head, then I can land the character confidently. And so my, my wife, who I, we've been together 32 years, I mean, married 26 of them, but she was like, I can't sing any of the songs of the show for eight weeks. I said, no, <laughs> because it'll get in my heat, my ear, you know? So that style, I had to learn the music first and be comfortable with how it was constructed because it had a density and it had a tension and it had a lot of things in it that were um, part of how the character felt. And if I just would have looked at the text only, um, I would have went, you know, oh, I think it should be this way. Oh, it's not going to be that way because of the way it was orchestrated. Well, Sondheim in particular, who I think is the musical theater writing god of all gods, um, he in particular is not the easiest person to perform. And that's, he he's, has a density to him. He has a complexity to him that most people, most composers don't have. And so that makes the performer's job that much more challenging, but also that much more rewarding, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. I could, I, exactly what you said. It is that <laughs> rewarding because we recorded the album, right? It was, and actually it's called the Complete Follies Recording. So there were songs that had been cut in London and he put in there just because he mm. was like, this is my chance to do this. And when I listen to that album, I'm so proud of it, you know, and, and there are certain songs in there that I know how hard it was. And even the dancing, there were certain dances in that show that were so hard that I don't want to do it again. <laughs> I, I don't want to go through it again, but I'm so glad, <clears throat> excuse me, that I went through it. Well, it's a source it, of pride. Yeah, yeah. I did the work. I put the work in and, I, I, and, and, and it paid off. But man, was it, it was. All right. So once you've opened a show, you've you've done all the rehearsals, you figured out the character, you've done all the interactions, you've been through direction and choreography and so on. How do you actively continue to find your way so that it doesn't become boring for you? What do you do? I live. I try to genuinely live in the moment as it's happening and listen and respond to what's going on in the scene and listen and respond to what's going on in the music. And if you're doing that, in, in, in a, as an artist, all your senses are awake anyway, it's really fun. I've gone on as a character opposite four different leading ladies because of vacation swings, illnesses, the, the understudy had to go on for, you know, half the second act. And it was a, a beautiful ballet of listening and responding and, and saying, I can't act it the same way with this character, with this actress, as I did that actress, because they're a different person. So live in the moment of what's being exchanged. Of course, the rehearsal helps you say we are all going to hit these these spots in our blocking but the tone that's coming at me right now if I'm really listening to this actress play that role I have to respond differently I can't just go this is what I say and this is how I say it and I'm done and that to me is the beauty of being in the moment while it's really happening and that's why and show show 743 is possible because you're truly living in the moment again and that's your job to go out there and be in the moment. Are you pretty good at, once you walk into the theater, um, divorcing your day, whatever's gone on in your day, are you pretty good at divorcing it from what you're about to do? Much more, much more in musicals than I would say in like film work or, or commercial work. 
for um, vocal work. Um, I sang in a big, you know, couple rock bands that, that, you know, just helped me with side money on the side. And, you know, you'd show up and have to just be on your game no matter what. And, you know, traffic on your way to that gig could really just wreck your whole night. Sure. For reasons that you're not playing a character. You just have to sound like the record, you know? So that's different. But, but if you're in a musical, I, I don't really have a half hour call. I have a half hour to prepare for my half hour. Right. I go ha- through things. Yeah. You got a half hour to get to your half hour. Yeah. And then that's how I let the day go. You know, I just let the day go in that half hour and I go, it's time to go to work, you know, and I'll do physical things. Um, you know, I'm a creature of habit. I like, I like things to be a certain way. I, I do not tell jokes in the wings. I do not run around and, you know, play, you know, Hey, let's see if I'm wearing anything different during this scene. You know, I would hope, you know, I, I don't want your listeners to think that professional actors are perfect people, but there are times where people try to enhance their show by juicing it up a little bit, whether they should or not. I can't do that. It throws me. Totally throws me. Is there anything that you would say that you have uh, learned from your years of performing um, that you you know over time you would you would continue to use repeatedly? And is there anything that you learned early on to not do anymore? Yeah. So I will only, even to this day, create a character if I'm wearing the right shoes. The right shoes. The right shoes. And I and I played seven or eight different people in a show. And I had seven or eight different pairs of shoes in rehearsal to find the character. And then if, you know, the designer was like, well, these are your shoes for the show. You know, that's fine. But I needed to find if there's a cowboy boot, if it's a sandal, if it's a tennis shoe, a Reebok, you know, that helped me find. If I have to play a 13-year-old boy, I put tennis shoes on and run around the room because the ground feels different and everything feels different. And my 48-year-old self is carried different than I am in a dress shoe to go to work in. I can't run around the room in those shoes. I have to walk differently. And then that, that informs my physical energy because it's, and I think some reasons it's because it's coming out of the ground. There's something underneath you that you just got to deal with. So I only wear the right shoes. And I have worked with people that are like, oh, he comes today with his bag of shoes. <laughs> He's bringing his bag of shoes. And when I auditioned for Footloose, true story, and they, I loved that creative team. Because when I say they let me be me, I auditioned for my Broadway dance call in Cowboy Boots. Really? Yeah. And they were like, what do you do? And I said, this is Beaumont, right? I mean, what are we doing? Are we, are we coming from Broadway dance or are we a bunch of kids that have never danced before? And they were like, all right, let's see. Let's see what happens, you know? And I love that. So that's a, that's a little bit of the Lawrence Olivier school of you work from the outside in you once Olivier had the costume and the makeup and the, then he knew what the character was from the outside in. Well, I, I can become the character in jeans and a t-shirt, but I have great strides and successes if I show up with a vest uh, just to give a hint of the professional life. It, it helps character. you to, to live yep. the part better. Yep. Very much so. Well, that's very interesting. You've clearly been at this a while, and there's no doubt at some points you've had the in-betweens where you weren't working, you didn't have a gig. What did you do to keep yourself in shape when you were between jobs? Well, you know, my life now is very different. You know, the, the, the 20 to 35-year-old musical theater actor character, I would you know, I would work out. Um, <clears throat> I don't work out in the gym all year, but I do believe very much so that muscle has a memory. And so I work out for three or four months 
every year to remind my body that I need it. Um, and if I don't do that, that body will disappear. I feel strongly, even though I'm 50 years old, if I worked out three months straight, my body would look like it looked when I was 25. Sure. I've seen it. I've seen it happen, right? My, maybe my eyes are a little bit, my cheeks, my face, maybe there's wrinkles that I have, but my body goes, he's expecting something to happen. Do you do the same yeah, thing with your voice? I do the same thing with my voice, but my voice, you know, the, the voice changes. Um, and I think it improves as you get older because you're more familiar with how to shape a vowel or how to land certain aspects of your, your breathing where when you're younger, you're just trying to um, figure out how to sing it again and again and again and again and again. Where I, I personally feel like when, I, when I'm older, I try to figure out how do I sing it and then let that become the performance. You know, I did not listen to, I don't listen to cast albums and go, I'm ready to play that role. I don't. I can't. I have to kind of go into. You have to work your way into it. I have to work my way into it. Or and, I, I, and maybe it's because I'll feel like I'm betraying me if I don't work my way into it. Do you yeah. feel like your voice has become richer over time? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I think it's become richer. I think it's become um, more descriptive. Um, I, I have written a, a couple one-man shows for side gigs, which this does answer your job. I create my own vehicles for performance so that I stay in moments, right? Mm. So I wrote a show that I do a number of times. Uh, it's just called Stages of Love. And I use songs from country music, pop music, Broadway shows, songs that were cut from shows that nobody will ever hear. I use songs that I can't get out of my, my soul, right? Because in my life, I'm in a different stage of my life. I'm in a different moment in my life. But my theatrical stage usually pleases the audience because it ties into, oh, he's an actor guy who loves to sing. And in the stages of love, I walk people through the highs and the lows of just love. But also for me, which is very, very true, I couldn't really talk about it if I didn't. My faith means the world to me. And I think God is love. And so I think stages of love, stages of God in my life that have given me great calm and great peace and great trust and great release and have given me the grace that I need to go, I'm me. I'm still me. Maybe now I'm a 50 year old me. And when I was a 40 year old me, that was me. And when I was a 30 year old me, but right now I'm me. And so when I sing about being a dad, I'm me. And when I sing about the love that I have for my children, I'm me. And when I sing about the relationships that you have with, with, with people in your life, whether they're living or not living, on me, but my voice earns their trust. Mm. There's something now at my age that's much more authentic than do I fit in the suit that I bought from a tailor to make sure that I kind of look good for my act. I don't need any of that now. I need the authentic voice of someone who has lived a little more. Well, you, you, that, you had to live your life to get there. Yes, and now I trust that that voice is what needs to be heard. It can be heard. Because um, you, you, you wouldn't have had that at 17. You wouldn't have understood. No, I wouldn't have understood it. I wouldn't have understood it. But when I do my act, people don't come up to me and go, that voice you have. My gosh, like you, 
were singing. They don't. They say, I can't believe how touched I am. I, can't, I feel like I'm a part of your family. Mm-hmm. I feel like you shared something with me that you only shared with me, but 200 people were in the room. And, and I think that's the voice I want. That's the connection that I want now, you know? So, but that's how I stay in shape. I write my own things. I, I do, I do things. I entertain, you know, my kids. I mean, let's be honest. I've got kids ages 22 to seven. So that's a big span of whatever I got to do to hold their attention is probably going to be pretty theatrical. Well, well, your, your kids uh, are lucky to have an entertaining father. <laughs> I have cooked breakfast with multiple names, by the way, you know? Yeah. <laughs> Can you think of a, a great piece of um, uh, tip, something that a director said to you during rehearsal that you stuck with you all these years, something that's, that elevated you in some way? Well, I, um, I should say it's not a tip, but a direction actually is what I'm looking for. Um, yeah, well, uh, it was a compliment that I got from, from someone who I respected a lot and it was a director and I had had the courage to leave a show to go be in another one. Mm. And I had expected that the, uh, the exchange between the producers and myself would have been more joyous. But it wasn't because they viewed it that I would be leaving a show. Why would I leave their show? Right. Which makes sense. I mean, you know, when you're the character that they were looking for, you're a solution to their problem. And if you take that solution and try to do something else, you become a problem. Right. And I'm okay with that. I always try to take two solutions to every problem. So I'm always like, but here's what we'll do, or I will come back, but I want to try. So anyway, I made the decision to go and it was because we were having our first child and I felt that if I didn't have the courage to try another aspect of my career, I would always stay wherever I was until that was done with me. I wouldn't have the courage to go, I'm here till, I'm, I'm here till they're done with me. Then I'll go somewhere else. So I made the decision to say, I would love to be received back if there's ever an opportunity, but I'm about to take care of a family. And that's different than when I met you. So I'm gonna go and do that. And I met the director on the sidewalk the day I made that decision public. And the, and the director said to me, Billy, here's one thing I can say. You, are, you have given 100% since the day I met you. I could walk in that theater and be performance number 400 and you're still there. It could be performance number 700 and you're still there. And when you leave, you get to take you with you. And that is an incredible thing because we have to look for someone now that's gonna be that committed to the show. Not that committed to themselves, but that committed to the show. And I think you need to know you're gonna work. Just keep taking yourself in the room. And I thought that was a really kind exchange because most people would think that director's gonna be mad at me now or they're never going to want to work with me again. Or, you know, now, you know, everybody wants that show. Everybody wants that job. And then why would he ever leave, you know? But my life was changing. And, and I had given more than I had ever taken. I tried to do that. I tried to give more than I take. So this was someone who went, why would you like go? Because you get to take you with Well, that's, that was a very lovely thing for that director to do. Um, you know, the, the, the good news from their perspective, even though the producers seem to be upset with you, but the good news from their perspective is 
no matter how talented you are and whatever you bring to the table, they know there are other people out there who will bring their own thing to it. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's not like, uh, I don't believe that there's such a thing as a performer in anything who is not replaceable. I don't think it exists. Agreed. <clears throat> Agreed. So, and the beauty of, and the beauty of that was after my daughter was born, the show was still running and they had said, Hey, part of the reality of this is we have to employ someone for like a three month span. I think there was like maybe a union moment where you can't just bring someone in for you know, a fill in. You had a, right. And they said, enjoy, enjoy this. Look, you know, and if, if you're interested in coming back, we'd love to have you come back. And I was like, then have at it, have a great couple months and I'd love to come back. And the only reason they could say, we'd love for you to come back because they knew that I would still show up and do it. Had I handled it differently, they would have been like, we're done. We're just done. You know? So someone else should have played that role and, and they did a great job. You didn't burn a bridge. No, there's no bridge. burn. No, you can't, but you can't can burn I, can, bridges. But can I tell you that there was a point in my career where I burned a bridge and I didn't know it. And that casting director held onto it for years. Wow. Um, I was non-union, non-represented. And I had auditioned for um, what was basically a world tour of West Side Story. And I was probably one of like 800 people that wanted to climb the fence that day and dance like a jet. And, and man, I did it. I did it. And I made it down to the last 12 guys. And then I made it down and I still didn't have an agent. And I didn't have, I, I was the, I was sweating blood for them, you know, basically. And they were like, he's, he's ready. And they wanted to read me for a number of roles. And I didn't know what the contract was. Very few people did. And there were white contracts and there were pink contracts, but there were certain contracts that there was not an out in the contract. So here I am in New York city. I was so excited. They kept auditioning me. They kept calling me back. I auditioned for riff, auditioned for action, riff, action, back and forth. And what it really came down to was I had to buy my way out of that show if I left it. Hmm. And I was like, wow, wow. Like, wait a minute. What, what, what is that about? And they're like, well, they sold your out. They, it, and politely, the union at that time let the producers buy the out for an extra financial buck. But I hadn't been in the business long enough and I didn't have an agent that was calling me. So I made the decision that I'm not going on the road for 18 months and have to pay my way out to come home if my marriage needs me or if I, my body can't sustain this. Like it was a very scary thing. So I said, I, said, I, I, I can't do this. But I didn't have anybody for them to call to be mad at. It was just me. And back then in the business, you didn't have cell phones, you had pagers, you know, and they beep. And then you ran to a payphone, and you're like, oh my gosh, there's that number again. I'm not going to say the casting director's number, but he was angry with me. Mm -hmm. He was furious with me because he believed in me. And I ended up saying no after he had presented me. And, and I was like, but how, at what point, if I had had an agent, to be fair to your listeners, they would have said, hey, you are in the running for, and these are the terms and the conditions. But I was a guy who literally took a bus, was asked to stay for a two-week span, and it was like, you're going to be in the show. And I didn't know what that meant until they gave me the contract. And I was like, are you kidding me? But I found out later that Tony turned it down, that Maria turned it down, and the Riff turned it down for the same reason. But they had agents. So it wasn't their own personal phone that was being well, you don't know whether that casting director harbored some kind of animus toward them as well. You don't know that. Oh, I'm sure he did, but he could share it with me. 
Right. Exactly. Them, he had he had to go through there with them. He had to go through their agents. Right. So there were there were there were two years where I was kept to the end. Politely, I was kept to the end. And then I was asked, tell us again, why did you turn down that contract? True story. So, all right. So, like, wow. I mean, that's just the nature of the beast. The entertainment industry is chock-a-block filled with um, moments where you you might make a mistake and don't know you've made the mistake. I just didn't know I made it. All I did was be, be you. willing to do everything they asked. Yeah, sure. And then, and then when they said, here's what we'll give you, I was like, well, do I have an opinion? I, I should at least have an opinion. Well, like, the, it's the old adage, you know, most writers work speculatively. You just like a, as a performer, you go and work out for as long as you work out. Nobody's paying you to work out. You go work out. You get your body ready. As a writer, you write and present stuff. R rarely is somebody paying you in advance. You have to make it up and present it. And then hopefully somebody, you hope that somebody buys it. Um, and so... Uh, the difficulty is, is when you uh, uh, lose the ability to take it to the next step and you can't take it to the next step. And what's that worth? And so people in the business, you know, they can be very unforgiving if you don't take advantage of the moment that they gave you. And and that's what you're talking about is, is you you didn't seem like you were um, appropriately genuflecting at their every beck and call. Yes. Yes. And, and I was appreciative and I was authentic in my thank you. And then when I saw what the business agreement was, right. I was smart enough to go, this, for all I know, this could break up my marriage before I even have a chance to let it. But, but, you know? but how dare you not be appreciating what we're saying yeah. to you? You know, that's what that amounts yeah. to is you're, you, you, you're not taking advantage of everything we're giving to you. Well, okay. So there are other extenuating circumstances that keep you from taking advantage of it. Great. That's just life. But it is the business is filled with stuff like that. And it's unfortunate when it happens, but it does. I, I want to spend a moment talking about the Center for Theater Arts. Um, what you. is it about uh, the Center for Theater Arts, aside from your long history with it, um, that you love about it? What gives you such joy in going to work? Because I can tell you're, you have joy in going to your job. I love this job. So, um, so first of all, it could be said that I have like, this perfect, beautiful little bubble. I mean, I moved back to my hometown from New York City. Um, most people would say you left healthier than when you got there, right? Not everybody gets to say that. And, and um, you could say that was, that was fun, but it's time to do something else. I bought the house I grew up in off my parents. I'm raising six children in a house that had life for seven. Um, I can walk to work if I want to. My kids have the same teachers that I had growing up. There's, there's just this reality of like, wow, he just like, added water and stirred it up. And now he's teaching and running the school that he developed his love of theater for. Like, it's just, it works, right? And he married his high school sweetheart. And they have, you know, they're, you know, the, the one joke that people laugh is I say, I do have six kids, and all to the same woman. And, you know, they're usually like, and that's not usually <laughs> how that happens, you know, especially in showbiz, you know. So, but the center, was a place not about a destination for a career. It was a place that could be a destination for when you walked through the door, you could say, my people, these are my people. So all, you know, kids from six different school districts come here. It was a nonprofit performing arts school. It is not a theater company. I don't have to worry about selling tickets to a great season. 
I have to get kids to trust, come into a room and meet some great people. Your character as a human being is more important to us than the character that you get to play. And somebody showed up here today because you did. And, when, and especially through this pandemic, we didn't, we didn't close one day. Really? We, we had a three-week assessment of, I thought they said two weeks to flatten the curve. What is this? They're not giving up. We, we, these kids need this place. I have 100 kids with special needs that come to this program. It's a free program for 41 years. And those kids are ages seven, and some of them are up into the mid-70s. We call them kids because they're students. But as a, as a program, we're the only place that runs a, kind of a, a program. The state doesn't teach singing and dancing and acting, you know, no. so they have found their way and they've stayed for 30 years. Right. So it's a, a very beautiful program. Well, I said, look, we, we can only run. I only had two studios big enough to social distance. But I gave all the other spaces to my parents of special needs kids when they came to just go and talk and like share, like, what is this isolation doing at this moment to your child? Because we all, all, no matter all, I say all kids have needs that are special. They're just different. And, and in the arts, we can find ways to, to meet those. Mm. And during this pandemic, it wasn't about a ballad. It wasn't about a show tune. It was about somebody waiting to look at another human being. And when that, when that I'll never forget, when the music started playing, uh, we did we did a co concert version of Godspell in the parking lot, pretty much. And we hit the very first chord. Kids started crying because they knew we're, we're going to do something together. It wasn't even that we were selling tickets. It wasn't even that I got the role I wanted. It was we're back, like doing something together. And that's what I love about the center. And somebody's not trying to out-sing someone. I don't have a theater school where 10 people want to play Pippin, and if it doesn't work out, I got to deal with it. I have a theater school where people show up to go, we all have a role to play. We really do. And together, we're setting this stage for success. I like to believe that I lead that feeling. I like to believe. They always say, Mr. Hartung, you should talk about your career more. I said, why? That's not why you're here. But you should, you have some really good stories. You should, you know, there was that, I watched you in the movie Chicago or I was listening to the cast album. What's it like to do a cast album? I said, if I talk about me while you're here, how am I going to get to know you? And they're like, you love this. I said, I do, but it's really hard because I have to be an actor, an entertainer, an artist, but I also have to be an executive. I have to be fiscally responsible sure. and I have to be the guy that knows how far can I lean. But when I talk to people, my love of this, my artistry, I can't, I, I mean, I almost failed out of high school. I'm just going to be honest. And that's just because back then there were not multiple assessments to pass a test. It was this way for you to do not go forward. Right. I've never lost a grant. Hmm. I've never written a cover letter that is the same letter to someone. And I have had people give me grants for 10 straight years for this school because they know every single time I write them, I wrote that letter to them because they can talk by the, they can tell by the dot, 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 italicized, big, bold letter, this, this, or this. And that I inserted the lyrics of 10 shows in their thank you letter. And they're like, he absolutely needs this money. And I love being allowed to have a job where I can be that honest. During the pandemic, um, we had a 40th anniversary and I had our anniversary party on the stage at Heinz Hall because we couldn't have gone to Heintal unless there was a pandemic. They're booked 260 shows a year. Who am sure. I kidding, right? I called them and said, all I need is your stage. I want to go virtual. 
These kids will be so well behaved. Let me talk to your state champs. Please let me talk to your state champs. I know I can do this in a way that they are going to understand what we're doing. These kids, we were, they said yes. We took them down there. We, we had 2,000 people virtually watch our, our 40th anniversary celebration. Oh, wow. They had no, you know, and we had a funder. Her name is Dolores Kara, and, and, and she was like, Billy, I'm so inspired by how much you love what you're doing that, that I just want to help you. And, and she did help me. And, and, and then she basically said, I'll, I'll, I'll help you do it again. And this year, we brought some friends in from New York, some, some Broadway friends came, and they used their voices to lift the voices of kids of all ability levels. And when they came to rehearsal, they watched my special actors. Five special actors took center stage at Heinz Hall, one of the most beautiful places in the country, with no rehearsal. They, got, they didn't even get a put in. Wow. They were in the audience until I called them up on stage, right? We rehearsed here the night before, and I got phone calls from my friends that I brought in, and they were like, Billy, whatever you need for these kids, we're going to do it. Mm. We've never seen any place like this. And you, like what we just watched, and I said, you guys, that's what it is every day. And it's not just because of the special needs program, although it's, it is special. It's because these kids value it. And the only reason I stayed open during a pandemic was because I let the kids participate in keep us open. I didn't tell them how to keep me open. I said, you help me keep this school open for you. If you're sick, if you don't feel well, if you think, oh, I want to do four feet instead of six feet, or he, he won't really notice if we're over here, don't do it. And we, we made it, you know? And, and I think that, they played the role. Uh, they played a role in the lives of other people that they'll never forget. And that wasn't even show business, you know. So I don't know if I answered your question. I could talk about the center a lot, but it's because it's important. This this place is important, and it's not because the kids sing higher than anyone or dance better. It's they're the cast of the it, school. It sounds to me like you're not just teaching about the arts or about entertainment, but you're teaching about life. And isn't that what art really does is impact us? Well, it does. Uh, but, it, it, you know, many people go into the arts and they become very tunnel visioned and super focused on it and so on. And they sometimes lose a little bit of the thread about what it is for or why we're doing it. And they get very, very focused. And this sounds like well, you you're know, teaching life. Yeah. And I think I have a board that trusts me. Um, and so I have. I don't, I don't play, I don't pose. And, you know, we've had, and, you know, you run a nonprofit business, you're dealing with the people who own your building, you know, are they going to make it through the pandemic? How am I going to go into a business meeting with them? And the first thing I do is say, before we talk, I want to tell you about 400 kids that lose everything. If you don't pay attention to what I'm telling mm. you, <laughs> we can talk, we can disagree, but those kids are the reason I'm here. It's not me. I already had a career. This is what we're doing. You either want to help me help these kids or you don't you know. Like, well, what kind of meeting is this? I said, it's the only way I can show up at this meeting. I am not a developer. I'm not an investor. I put my school in the belly of yours. Are you going to help me help these kids or not? It changes every meeting. It changes every meeting, you know? Mm. And, and the, the flip side of that is when somebody supports us, I tend to reach out to them and tell them how it went before they reach out to me and go, how did it go? And they love that because there's a truth to, to it. You know, there's a, there's an honesty to it and it's not really, what can you help me pay for next? It's, do you want to see what you did? Do you see what we did? You know, and there's a real joy in that, you know, there's a fear. I mean, who are we kidding? You know, 
if I, I now have a job as an artist who's also an executive, I'm not complaining, folks. I'm explaining, right? But I employ people. If they lose their jobs, that impacts their family. It's a different feeling for me. I mean, you know, I kind of was wired to educated first and foremost, you know, use my artistry, create a show, shows open, shows closed. You know, I got 300 no's in my life. I got eight yeses people still want to talk about. A movie that won an Academy Award, a couple of award shows, a couple of big, you know, big parties. And I could talk about that, but there's still 300 no's. There's still 300 no's. That's the part that people don't, never know about is the all the many no's you get. They know about your successes, but they don't know about your, you, not, they're not so much failures as not the inability to get to the yes. Yeah. And, and whatever that yes was, maybe it wasn't supposed to be your yes. You know, right, exactly. I mean, you know, uh, it was funny. Someone said, you know, explain your first Broadway show experience. And, and I said, you know, it was interesting. By the time everybody found out I was on Broadway, it had closed, <laughs> you know, and, and I wouldn't change it for the world because I know what it, I know what every moment was like. And to be very, very fair to me, I had more performances on a Broadway stage than I had ever done any show ever anywhere. And they hadn't even called it opening night yet. It was called previews. Right. And they're like, what do you mean? And I said, there were 32 previews before we called it opening night. To me, I showed up at a Broadway theater and I had a chance to do what I love. Of course. We opened, we opened a month ago. Yeah. <laughs> Of course. Well, I have been speaking to uh, Billy Hartung, who uh, clearly has no passion for what he does. I mean, you're a really passionate guy, sir. And uh, I've been speaking to him for, you know, almost an hour and 20 minutes. And we're going to kind of wind this thing down. And I'm just wondering, in all of your experiences, and you've had many wonderful ones, um, can you share a story with us that is either weird, offbeat, strange, quirky, or just plain funny? Yeah, I think it actually led to a lot of um, my success. I, I came out of Point Park and I wanted to audition for Damn Yankees on Broadway. I got on a bus and I went up there and I was a physical dancer and you bet I could play baseball in a show. Why not? And I went to an audition and uh, I met my first casting director was Jay Bender and Rob Marshall was there and Rob knew I was associated with the Playhouse, but only because his partner was in a show that I was in. So I was like, oh, oh, he's here. He didn't know who I was until I danced, but he was there. And then uh, I thought, well, I'm, at least I'm here. And I, and I made it down to the last dozen guys. And then they said, if you tumble, stay. And if you don't, thank you very much. And I looked around the room and I thought, if you tumble, stay. If you tumble, all right, I'm staying. I don't tumble though. I can jump in the air and I can roll around and do a couple of things I'd learned in seventh grade gymnast class, but I don't tumble like a Broadway tumbler. But if I left, I was like, I'm not going to get the job. Like I'm not leaving now. I've been here all day. And for people who want to know what that's like, they expect you to be a better dancer six hours later than you were the first hour, which is almost impossible because you're exhausted by yeah, that time. Right. Sure. So I stay and one guy goes flipping through the room. The guy flips through the room and I was like, oh boy, Billy, you, boy, you're going to make an impact here because I didn't want to leave. I didn't, I wasn't going to sneak out the door after I decided to stay. So it became my turn and I, I threw myself uh, in the air, did a couple martial arts kicks that seemed somewhat dynamic and did about three splits and I spun around and flipped and got up. And by the time I stood up, I was facing the wrong side of the room. I wasn't facing the side of the tables. <laughs> And I, I did some headstands, or head springs, not handsprings. Like literally my hands hit and then my head hit the floor. <laughs> my hands hit and, the, and I got up and 
And they were like, uh, Billy, and, and Rob Marshall stood up. I'll never forget this. And he said, Billy, you do not tumble. <laughs> and I said, I know, but you were going to let me leave. And I, he goes, wait, 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 wait. We, we, we love what you did. And I do want to talk to you. But when someone asks, if you tumble, you don't stay. <laughs> Billy Hart doesn't stay. And I was like, all right, fine. So, but what it did was it left quite an impact in the room that even for the other dancers, they were like, who is he? And what is he doing here? And, and I wasn't apologetic. I was just uneditedly me. However, the reason for that story is Rob came out and he was like, I've seen you perform. You were in a show in Pittsburgh. I, I remember you. And, and so we had a very nice exchange. And Jay Bender, who had, I first met there, who had cast me in a number of things as the years went by, he says, how do I get in touch with you? And I said, well, I, I'm going on a bus. I'm going back to college. He goes, you don't even live here? I said, no. He goes, well, when you live here, you know, figure it out, but you don't tumble. And I said, great. That was fine. I move here. Two years later, forum happens with Whoopi Goldberg and Nathan Lane. Right. I get invited to the audition by the same team, everybody that was in that room. Right. They didn't, they invited people who they believed could have played the Protean, but they weren't sure how high they were going to go. So they had hired all these different dancers and entertainers based on their height. I go in the room. The first thing they say before I sing is no tumbling. <laughs> Two years had gone by. Two years had gone by, right? I was like, no tumbling. And they're like, if you throw yourself out that window, it will not increase your chances of getting the show. We've seen you. <laughs> by that time, I had had some success. I had been on Broadway and Sideshow and, and uh, Footloose was in the, in the works. So then five years later, I get invited to the Chicago audition for the film by the same people, same casting team. Right. And I go in and I dance and, and there's no tumbling. There's no question of that. But all I had to really do was still be me. And at the end of that audition, Rob looked at me and he had seen me so have some professional success, but he looked at me. I'll never forget it. And he said, it's time. I said, it's time for what? He goes, I just, I just think it's time. Now I didn't know if that meant I got a job. I just thought maybe time, I don't know. I did a good job, whatever it meant, but I had a whole subway subway raid home going, am I going to be in this movie or not? Cause I couldn't be in Chicago eight shows a week. I'm not that technical of a dancer. They hired me. And it was really, and I spent three months working on that movie with some of the most beautiful dancers in New York City that could really outturn me and out pirouette me. But Rob knew that if that camera had hit me when he wanted someone to be in it, I was not going to have a problem doing that at all. There would be plenty of people he could capture that could do hoite turns and pirouettes and, and backflips. But he trusted me with his dream. That was his first major movie, and I, was gained, I gained access. But had I not had the honesty to be me six years prior, I, I don't think I would have ever made it to, well, we know one thing. You're going to get everything out of him if he shows up. That's what we know. So is he coachable? Is he directable? Can we do this? The answer is yes. So if we're going to go for it, let's do it. And I don't think that would have happened if I wasn't that guy who tried to tumble. Wow. Well, you know, clearly um, he hired you for you, not for your specific precise skill. Yeah. He hired you for what you, he knew you would bring to the personality of it. And I, and I, and I, that makes me feel really happy because I know how that, I know what that is. And if he called me tomorrow and said, Hey, I'm thinking of doing something for the 20th anniversary of Chicago, I know how I would show up. That's kind of wonderful and easy for me. That is a wonderful story. And of course, Rob Marshall, for those who don't know, is also a Pittsburgher and, um, and, and went to my high school, which is Taylor Allardyce High School. Oh, yeah. And, and, he, <laughs> and nobody treats his actors better. I mean, he just, he, 
he takes care of them, you know. Indeed. So, all right, last question for you tonight, Billy. Um, do you have a solid, you've already given us an amazing amount of advice, <laughs> just an amazing amount, but do you have a single solid piece of advice or a tip for those that may be trying to break into the industry or maybe they're in a little bit and trying to get to the next level? Well, if you're trying to make it into the industry, and, and we did touch on it a little bit earlier, but it's easy to recall, show them what it would be like to spend a day with you rehearsing and do it in two minutes. Because really, they want it to work and they need you. They just don't know they need you yet. So if you show up and you have what, what you know, as a baseline or, or capabilities, a lot of people that day are going to have those capabilities elsewhere. So who do you want to actually hang out with all day? Who do you want to spend time with? Who do you want to be vulnerable with? Who do you want to have a success with? And if you can go, a guy like me, I think, I'm, I think I'd be a good choice. I might not get the job, but if I show them me, the next time they call me back, I'll have no problem being me again. And if I get the job, I'll have no problem remembering who they hired. That, to me, is the best advice I could give anybody. Because there's only one you. There's just one. That is uh, remarkably solid and beyond sensible. Because uh, if you don't come and show them who you are, or whether they are willing to spend time with that person, whoever you are, then you're not going to get the job. So you have to show them who you are. And I think that that's really sound piece of advice. Billy Hartung, this has been a fantastic, way more than an hour on a story beat today. And I'm so thrilled that you spent this time with us. Well, thank you so much. I'm so blessed to have the journey that I've had. And, and I, um, I'm just really honored to, to have a chance to share it. And I can remember it because it was, it was all little slices of life that made me a happy person. And so we've come to the end of today's story beat. If you like this episode, won't you please take a moment to give us a comment, rating, or review on whatever app or platform you're listening to. Your support helps us bring more great story beat episodes to you. StoryBeat is available on all major podcast apps and platforms, including Apple Podcasts, YouTube, Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, TuneIn, and many others. Until next time, I'm Steve Cuden, and may all your stories be unforgettable.